Welcome back to the Through the Psalms podcast. I'm Wesley Provine. Today we're going to do Psalm 4. This is a psalm of David. Uh, it was probably written around the same time uh, as Psalm 3 when he was going through the situation with Absalom. The superscript of the psalm says, To the chief musician, or the choir director, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm and then we'll discuss uh, each verse. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me, and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity, and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe, and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed, and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down to peace. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Okay, well, let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 shows us four secrets to David's life. You know, in Acts 13, the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And we can kind of see from this psalm why that was so. Uh, First of all, number one, David was a man of prayer. You see, he starts out with prayer to God. And we see over and over again through the scriptures, not just in the psalms, but also uh, in the you know, book of First Samuel, we see that David was a man of prayer. He went to God in prayer when he was in distress, when he had a need, uh, when he needed guidance, or even just to thank God and to praise God. So he sets a, a great example for us in that regard, that we should be people of prayer. He asked God to hear him, and he calls to him, and he, he asks God for uh, help and for mercy. Number two, um, David sought God's righteousness. Notice that he says, O God of my righteousness. David uh, realized that he wasn't righteous in and of himself, but he needed the righteousness of God and that God only was holy and God only was righteous. And so David was humble enough to realize that he needed God's righteousness. Three, he sought relief uh, from God. That word enlarged in verse 1 uh, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. It can mean it, he, res, he has relieved me. Uh, David sought relief from, from the distress and the problems that he faced, and he sought that relief in God. If you know the story of David, uh, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 30, uh, David and his men uh, came to Ziklag, and uh, the Amalekites had burned the town, and they had stolen the women, and David's uh, two wives were stolen, and the people were discouraged, and they were upset with David. And it says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So you see time and time again how David, when he was in distress, when he was discouraged, he encouraged himself in God. He sought relief in God alone. And that's one of the, the great things about David. I think that's why he was called a man after God's own heart was because he sought God time and time again. And then four, uh David realized that he needed God's mercy. He asked here in verse 1 for God's mercy, and you'll see that a lot throughout the Psalms. 
Uh, he was humble enough to realize that he was a sinner, that he needed God's mercy, and he wasn't afraid to ask for God's mercy. And I think that also sets a pattern or an example for us to do the same. So you see from verse 1 that David was a man of prayer. He was a man who sought after God, sought relief in God. He sought mercy from God. All right, moving along to verse 2. It's almost as if the uh, voice here shifts from David to uh, God. To me, when I read this, it seems like God is speaking in verse 2. He's asking mankind how long they will turn his glory into shame. Uh, Those words vanity and leasing in the King James are kind of hard to understand here, but the word vanity means worthlessness, and the word leasing means falsehood. Some translations uh, translate that false gods. So you see here a picture of of mankind or humanity that um, has a tendency to seek after things that do not profit, that are worthless, that are false, um, that are harmful. And uh, you see a contrast here with those things and the things of God. The things of God are pure, they're eternal, they're beneficial, but the things of the world are sinful, uh, they're temporary, they're often harmful. And so David, I think, here is encouraging Uh, people to seek God and seek the things that matter. Seek the things that are going to last. Don't seek the things of the world that are are worthless and that will will not profit you. Um, 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So David was wise enough to seek after the things of God, seek after the things that would last, and not the things that were false or that were worthless, the things of the world. All right, moving along to verse 3. It says, But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. You see here again a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, It's kind of like Psalm 1 in which there was a clear contrast between the righteous man and and the wicked man. And here we see again that, that God knows those that are his. God knows the godly. He can distinguish between the godly and the wicked. And he, it says he hears, uh, he hears him when he calls unto him. Um, if you will turn to, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Second Timothy, uh, three nineteen, and let's look at that real quickly. Second Timothy three nineteen says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal: the Lord knoweth them that are His, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. People may be able to deceive others. Uh, They may be able to make people think that they're righteous or they're godly. But God knows those that are his. He's able to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, You can't fool God. You can fool people, but you can't fool God, and he knows. And it urges the righteous to depart from iniquity, to be different uh, from the world, because the the righteous have the Lord's seal on them. so, you know, Psalm 34 talks about how uh, the Lord hears the cries of the righteous, but, his, but he's against those who do evil. Uh, one of the themes you'll see in the Psalms is how the Lord and his, his ears are open to the cries and the prayers of the righteous, but he is against the wicked. And so, uh, as Christians, as believers, as people who love the Lord, we can have that godly confidence that the Lord hears our prayers. And that's a great assurance to us. That's a great promise that He wants us to pray, that He hears our our cries and our prayers. 
And that's a promise uh, from his word. Uh, but he's against those who do evil and that do wickedly. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Uh, some translations translate that word regard, um, cherish. So if I cherish sin or iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if we want the Lord to hear our prayers, uh, we need to confess our sins. Uh, we need to make sure that there's no sin in our heart that we're cherishing or holding on to. If there is a sin that we're cherishing, it's going to impede uh, our prayers. Um, so we have a choice. We can either cherish our sin or we can confess and forsake our sin. And if we want our prayers to be heard, then we have to confess and forsake our sin, uh, not cherish it. Verse 4, back in Psalm 4, uh Stand in awe or tremble, and some translations say tremble, uh, and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Um, we ought to fear the Lord. Uh, it's not a very popular message uh, today, but the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. So there is a sense that when we come before the Lord, we tremble, we fear because He is holy and we are not. We're sinners and we're only saved by His grace. So we ought to have a healthy reverence, a healthy fear uh, for the Lord. And then David urges um, the reader to commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. We need to take time to... Um, be still before the Lord. Some translations, instead of commune, they say meditate, ponder, search our heart. So we need to get before the Lord. We need to have quiet time. We need to be still and search our heart, uh, ponder things in our life, and see if there's anything that is not right, see if there's anything we need to confess. And if we want to hear from God, we have to have that quiet time where we are still the world is such a busy place and it's so loud and there's so many distractions and you have to get away every once in a while and get still before the Lord and listen to what he's telling you through his word. Uh, and technology in a way is uh, such a distraction because, you know, when I get in my quiet time, I like to have my Bible before me and just read from my actual Bible instead of reading it on my phone. Uh, when I really want to have a good quiet time because, you know, you think of your phone, you have all these pop-ups and notifications and interruptions, and it's hard to listen to the Lord when you're constantly being interrupted. So set aside a time where you can be quiet, where you can be free of interruption and distraction, and search your heart, um, ponder, meditate upon God's Word, and listen to what the Lord's telling you. We desperately need that in our day and age because we live in such a fast-paced society, such a loud society full of distractions. And so this is much needed. And, and I, David, even in David's day, he realized the importance of this and he urged people to do that. All right, moving on to verse 5. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now, what are the sacrifices of righteousness? Uh, First of all, let's talk about um, some things here. Uh, first of all, we don't have time to go into all the sacrifices that are mentioned in Leviticus, but if you want to read that on your own time, the book of Leviticus uh, talks a lot about the different kinds of sacrifices that they offered in the Old Testament. But what I want to focus on, of course, is Christ and his sacrifice. When Christ died on the cross, 
He offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and, and our salvation comes from the sacrifice that Christ provided for us on the cross. And so let's look in Hebrews, if you will, turn to the book of Hebrews, and look in chapter 9 and verse 22, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. And you'll see there, uh, it says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Uh, This is one of the themes you'll see throughout the Bible, that there has to be shedding of blood um, for remission of sins. Now, in the Old Testament, they had all these animal sacrifices, the the blood of bulls and goats. Um, But as we're going to read here in a minute, that could not atone for our sins. That was just a picture of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross that was to come. And so if you look there in verse 26, Hebrews 9, 26, it says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So that we see here that Christ was the fulfillment of all those pictures in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices of animals were just symbols or pictures that pointed to Christ. And Christ was the fulfillment of all that. He was the sacrifice that could take away our sins. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 and look in verse 1, it says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins." Back in the Old Testament, the high priest would go into the temple and he would make an atonement. On the Day of Atonement, he would make an atonement for the sins of the people. And he would um, uh, do that once a year on behalf of the people. But Christ is our high priest. And he doesn't do that every year. He did it once and for all. He did it one time. It's a one-time sacrifice. He doesn't have to do it again. Uh, And Christ is our high priest who died offered himself as a sacrifice, paid for our sins. God raised him from the dead, and now he is in heaven at God's right hand, one day to come back again and get those who have believed in him. Notice that it says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Once again, those sins, I'm sorry, those sacrifices in the Old Testament were just a picture. They didn't actually uh, provide forgiveness but they pointed to Christ, who would be our sacrifice. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's an exchange here. Christ took our sins upon himself, and then he gives us, or he imputes to us, his righteousness. Uh, 
So that's a wonderful thing for us. He took our blame. He took our punishment. He took our sin. But he gives us his righteousness because we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. So you see that exchange there, that our salvation uh, through Christ. Now I want to go back a little bit to the Old Testament and talk about uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel for a second. If you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they took fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness and cover their shame. But if you remember, God made them coats of skins to cover them. Now, why is that significant? Because remember, we read a moment ago about without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Fig leaves, you don't have to shed blood to put fig leaves on. But you do have to shed blood to make coats of skins. And I think there, even in that story with Adam and Eve, we have a picture that there had to be shedding of blood to cover their sin and their shame. Fig leaves wouldn't cut it. There had to be shedding of blood. Then you think about the story of Cain and Abel. They both offered something to God, but God, uh, he accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Why did he do that? If you remember, Abel offered the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. Cain offered the fruit of the ground. Well, if you think about those two offerings, one, Abel offered the best that he had, but more importantly, there was the shedding of blood. He offered an animal sacrifice. There was the shedding of blood. Cain offered the work of his hands, the fruit of the ground, but there was no shedding of blood in that. Abel offered the appropriate sacrifice because his sacrifice pointed to Christ. Cain's did not. So what are the sacrifices of righteousness? If we go back to um, Psalm 4, as Christians, let's say we've accepted Christ and we're Christians and and we have put our faith in, in what Christ has done for us, what does it mean for us as Christians to offer the sacrifices of righteousness? Well, I just want to look at... Um, four verses here that kind of talk about things that we can offer God as believers. If you'll turn to Psalm 51 and verse 17, Psalm 51 and 17, uh, this is another Psalm of David, and he says there, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, that will not despise. So when we come to God, we need to come without pretense We need to come humbly. We need to come honestly. God doesn't want us to play games. He doesn't want us to put on a show. He just wants us to come honestly and humbly and just be real before him. And David says this here in this verse. If we have a humble, broken heart, a contrite heart, a repentant heart, we come before God honestly, God will honor that. But he's not going to honor or answer the prayers of somebody that comes before him with pretense and with show and and as putting on a show and playing games. He's not gonna God's not gonna honor that. So one of the sacrifices we can offer is just a contrite heart, just a, a humble and honest heart. Second thing, uh, in Psalm one sixteen, verse seventeen, it says, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord we can offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and prayer. Give thanks in all things. Uh, God has blessed us, first of all, with Christ, with his salvation, with 
with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can we should give thanks to, to God for that. Uh, so we offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and we call upon the Lord in prayer. Uh, the third thing, if you turn uh, to the book of Romans, and you look at Romans uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, this is a famous verse, and it's a good verse for everybody, but especially for new Christians. Uh, Romans 12:1 says, "I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." I also read verse two there. So another sacrifice that we offer is our bodies. We offer God our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is, we're not um, martyring ourselves, but we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, surrendering to God, uh, holy, acceptable unto God. And it says that is our reasonable or rational service. Since Christ has died for us, given himself for us, the least we can do is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice unto him. All right, the fourth sacrifice, if you'll turn back to the book of Hebrews, and if you look in Hebrews 13 and verse uh, 15, Hebrews 13, 15, it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but to, God, uh, but to do good and to communicate or share. Forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So there we see we offer the fruit of our lips of praise. We offer praise to God, and it calls that a sacrifice. And to do good and to share. And with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So those are just four verses that you can think about uh, when we think about the sacrifices of righteousness. But I think the most important thing to remember is that Christ is our sacrifice and that he offers us salvation. And it's only possible because of what he did for us on the cross. We can't earn it ourselves. We're never good enough uh, to please God on our own. We don't have any righteousness on our own. It's purely by the grace of God through Christ Jesus that we are accepted uh, through faith. All right, so we see there, let me just review real quick the four things that I read there uh, as far as sacrifices that we offer. One, our hearts. We offer our hearts to God. We offer our bodies we offer praise and thanksgiving, and then to do good and to share. If you go back to Psalm 4 and look there in verse 5 again, the second part of that verse says to put your trust in the Lord. You know, the main theme of the book of Psalms, I think, is to praise God. It's all about praising and worshiping God. But if there's a secondary theme, I think it might be to put your trust in the Lord. You'll see that over and over again in the book of Psalms, trusting in the Lord. And so that's what David does. Uh, that's what he admonishes others to do. Um, all right, let's move on to verse 6. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. 
you know, there are a lot of people in this world just looking for some good. This is a, a dark, evil, depressing world a lot of times, and people are just looking for somebody to show them some good. And where they should look is God, because God is the one that shows us goodness. He's, he is good, and we ought to trust in the goodness of the Lord. David asked here for God to um, lift up the light of his countenance or the light of his face upon him. We also see that in Numbers chapter 6, you know, that priestly benediction where it talks about uh, the, uh, the, the countenance, the light of thy countenance, uh, the light of God's face upon us. Uh, the book of Psalms talks about how God's face is toward those who love him but against the proud and against those who do evil. And so we ought to seek God's favor. We ought to seek God's goodness. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the book of Psalms is Psalm 27, 13. It says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, in one of his sermons, he was talking about this verse, and he said, Lord, you know, without your goodness, David's basically saying here, without your goodness, I couldn't have got out, gotten out, I couldn't have gotten out of bed in the morning. I couldn't have opened the, the shades or the blinds and faced the day unless I had believed in your goodness. And so we need to remember to trust in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And David did that. The goodness of the Lord is what kept David going. And so in this world that's so depressing and so dark sometimes, keep your eyes on the goodness of the Lord, and that will sustain you. The, the book of Romans talks about how the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And so it's, it's such a powerful concept, and we ought to we ought to just focus on that. If we can keep our eyes on the goodness of the Lord, uh, that will take us a long way. All right, moving on to verse 7. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. One of the gifts that God gives us as believers is joy. The book of Nehemiah talks about how the joy of the Lord is our strength. If we don't have joy, then we're not going to make it very far. We're going to exhaust ourselves. We're going to get burned out. And if we don't have joy, it's kind of a sign that something's wrong. When you're driving down the road and you're in your car and the light comes on and it's telling you there's something wrong with your engine, well, if you don't have joy in your life, that's kind of a, a sign. That's kind of a warning light. Hey, something's wrong. Uh, it could be for, I guess, a number of reasons. It could be because there's sin in your life. It could be because you've neglected um, God's word and prayer. It could be because you've neglected to meet with God's people. It could be for any number of reasons. But if, as a healthy Christian, you should have joy uh, in your life, that doesn't mean that you're always happy and everything goes your way. It just means that there's a sense of joy and peace in your heart that comes from the Lord. And the Lord puts that in our heart. And here David says it's even better than worldly prosperity. He says that God has put gladness in his heart even more than those that prosper and have, you know, their barns full of, of grain and wine and, uh, and they have all the worldly things you could ever want. The joy of the Lord is, is better than all of that. There's a lot of people in this world that have riches, that have worldly prosperity, but they're miserable. So just because you prosper in worldly things does not mean you're going to have joy. And so our joy is not dependent upon what we have. It's not dependent upon our circumstances. Our joy is dependent upon our relationship with the Lord. All right, let's turn to verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 8. Uh, this is the last verse. 
Um, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. What a wonderful verse this is. Uh, if you have trouble sleeping at night, you can just read this verse. Uh, this verse, uh, I think, will calm your, your, your spirit and just give you God's peace. So you see the gifts that God, that God gives us. He gives us peace. He gives us rest. He gives us safety. And, uh, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, in, in chapter 12, verse 10, um, it talks about when the people go over the river Jordan, that God's going to give them rest from their enemies, and they're going to dwell in safety. And he promises the people that if they obey him, that when they get into the land, he's going to give them peace and safety and protection from their enemies. And he promises us that too. Uh, it's not that everything is always going to go our way. It's not that we won't have troubles. But God does promise that we he, that he will give us peace and that he will protect us and give us security if we trust in him. And so that's a wonderful promise uh, from God's word. So as we, as we think about this psalm, Psalm 4, um, First of all, I just want to give you a, a brief outline of the psalm. Uh, there's four parts that I could see to it. One, uh, the address, verse 1, that is, David addresses the Lord in prayer. Um, two, the admonition, verses 2 through 5, David admonishes others to seek the Lord and to trust in the Lord. Uh, three, the affirmation, verses 6 and 7, um, David affirms the goodness of the Lord. And then in verse 8, the assurance. David is assured by God's peace and safety. As we think about this psalm, uh, I was trying to think of the main point, uh, the overall theme. And it, it, I think it's best found there in, in verse 5. Uh, Put your trust in the Lord. I think that's what David's trying to tell us here, is that once again, there's two ways we can go. We can put our trust in the things of the world, um, we can seek after those things, like in verse 2, that don't profit, that are worthless. Or we can put our trust in God and be blessed with joy and peace and safety. And so I think that's what David's trying to tell us here, is to put our trust in the Lord. Well, thank you for listening. God bless you, and have a wonderful week.